Paul says in verse 12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. As you also have understood in part that we are your boast as you are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might receive a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly or the things I plan? Do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has also anointed us in God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith, you stand. And Father, we stand here in faith before you this morning, believing that your word <clears throat> is inspired by your spirit and that it is profitable, as you said, for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, would you now speak through what you have spoken already in the Holy Scriptures that your spirit's ministry would prepare us and that your spirit's voice would speak to each one of us. And we ask you to bless our time in the word of God this day in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if there is one additional thing in life uh, that you can rely on beyond what they say is death and taxes, right? If there's one more thing you can rely on beyond death and taxes, it is this, it's misunderstanding. Because we are all flawed as human beings and we can all be critical from time to time, and because we often don't know all the details in matters, though sometimes we assumptively think that we do wrongly, and because God sometimes is doing things that we don't know or maybe we can't understand, in connection to those things, as a result, you can rely on that misunderstandings are going to happen among us as people. You are going to be wrongly misunderstood from time to time by other people. It's just going to happen. And there are going to be times when you are guilty of wrongly misunderstanding someone else from time to time. It's going to happen. And this scripture that we're looking at this morning, this last half of chapter one here, really comes to us in direct relation to a misunderstanding that happened between people. 
And we basically see God taking something that was a misunderstanding and a difficulty. And thankfully, God remains consistent and reliable despite the unreliability or misunderstandings or whatever happens among us in our relationships, God always remains reliable. And in fact, sometimes disappointments with one another actually become the driving thing that cause us to really appreciate God's reliability and God's dependability and the fact that God is so constant and we never have to worry about him being inconsistent. Now, let me give a little backdrop as we look at the end of chapter one, which will kind of help put together some of the pieces of what the Holy Spirit was saying through Paul's writing here, because in reading it, it can be perhaps a little bit, what, what is going on here? Yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, or first, or who's on first, what's on second? And it's kind of one of those kind of things where you could look at the passage and begin to kind of wonder what Paul's getting to. Well, Look, despite all Paul had done to invest in the church at Corinth, planning the church there, ministering there for 18 months and so forth, we know that ultimately, because Paul spoke without reservation, and he always spoke the truth and what he felt was beneficial and what people needed to hear rather than people wanted to hear, there were some, of course, who at times were offended by that. And people don't always want to hear what they need to hear. And some aren't always receptive and some didn't like what Paul said, particularly in the first letter, which was very corrective and straightforward. And because of that reality, some became offended and resisted Paul. And it seems we're trying to stir up distrust towards him as a person. They were trying to question and discredit not only his person, but even his ministry as well. And one area they were trying to do this was in relation to, as we're going to see here, a misunderstanding that had happened in regards to Paul's original plan to come and visit the church there at Corinth. At the end of the first letter, which we studied together, written a year before this one, in chapter 16, verse 5 through 8, Paul said, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I'm passing through, and it may be that I'll remain or even spend the winter with you that you may then send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits, but I will tarry now in Ephesus until Pentecost. So Paul informed them in a very practical way that he had made some plans because he's going to be passing through their area to ultimately visit them that he didn't necessarily want to come on the way and have just a brief visit, but he wanted to come on the tail end of the trip so that he could spend a greater amount of time with them and be with them maybe for an entire season. But you notice at the end of that, he put the caveat right within there, if the Lord permits. Now, somehow they missed that part. These are my plans. This is my intention. If the Lord permits permits if he allows it to unfold that way and the doors stay open and the opportunities work themselves out this is what my intentions are but paul says ultimately i let the lord guide what unfolds in my life and sometimes paul had learned from past experience sometimes the lord overrides he closes doors he changes our itinerary it's just a part of what happens and something arose that brought a change in paul's plans and the Lord rerouted his servant Paul in such a way in that season whereby this visitation didn't happen there in Corinth as Paul had mentioned to them. 
And this change of plans was misunderstood by some at Corinth, and then sadly it was used to start to make accusations against Paul. See, this guy's not reliable. We told you. He's not dependable. If he really cared about us, he would have followed through and came and visited. And they started criticizing Paul as being someone who wasn't reliable, someone who just was inconsistent, who didn't know how to follow through with a plan and wasn't able to keep his word. So Paul now has to address this matter to clarify the misunderstanding. And that's what he's doing in this section of chapter one. Yet out of this understanding and the efforts to communicate, to try and bring resolution, the spirit of God takes advantage of this and gives to us some wonderful truths from second Corinthians, which we would not have if there wasn't a misunderstanding. Oh, I wish misunderstandings didn't happen. Well, Sometimes misunderstandings bring good things. In the end result, people talk, they communicate, clarity happens. And here Paul addresses a misunderstanding and we get some wonderful spirit-inspired truths that we wouldn't have if a misunderstanding didn't happen because God is a way to work all things together for the good ultimately. So Paul, with that backdrop, begins by saying in verse 12, for our boasting is this, our confidence, the idea is, the testimony of our conscience, the idea is our conscience bearing testimony or witness to us within, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly in these ways, he says, towards you. So Paul begins this section by seeking to clarify the wrong thoughts that he knew had developed in the minds of some towards him by openly proclaiming to them the deep sincerity of his heart towards them and towards all those he ministered to, even as the testimony of some people was harsh and critical towards who? Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He never did anything wrong. And we know what happens when you're perfect. They falsely accuse you, they misunderstand you, and they pin you to a cross. That's what happens to perfect people. That's what we do to perfect people. And so from time to time, no matter how perfect or imperfect you and I may be in our conduct or our words, we're going to be at times misunderstood, falsely accused, hurt. And, and so Paul's now as a servant of the Lord going through the same experience as the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. The testimony of some at the church of Corinth had became very critical towards Paul due to this misunderstanding of not coming there. And they started accusing Paul. This guy's not sincere hearted. I told you he was a fake. I mean, he's see that? There you go. Here's his true colors. Instead, he's just got corrupt motives, and you can't really depend upon him. And Paul here in verse 12, in essence, is saying, I am so thankful that I can be confident that he says, the testimony of my own conscience inwardly before God tells me the truth about myself. No matter what others are saying about me in the midst of this misunderstanding, he said, I am glad the testimony of my own conscience helps me to understand within. And then he refers to a few things. He says that we conducted ourselves in simplicity. That word simplicity speaks of that which is pure and simple. The idea is we conducted ourselves in a pure-hearted way. Paul's implying there, look, we didn't have various underlying agendas despite what people may think about us. There were no impure motives in what we were doing and he says, in fact, we conducted ourselves, he says, secondly, with godly sincerity. The idea there is being genuine and real. Paul says we weren't fake individuals trying to cover things up that were going on. 
Paul's saying there was godly sincerity. We weren't living a double life. We weren't behaving one way in front of you as ministers and Christians and then having a completely different thing going on in our private lives and in our personal lives. And sadly, this can be a grievous mistake sometimes that happens both to Christians and even to Christian ministers when we see things come out from time to time where there's a completely different thing going on in the, in the private life. And, and Paul says, we didn't do that. We, we had godly sincerity. We were sincere. We were real. And he says, and we weren't operating, verse 12, he says, in fleshly human wisdom, but by the grace of God. In other words, we weren't letting our flawed human desires and our flawed fleshly human reasoning be what was directing what we did or didn't do. We were seeking to be empowered by the grace of God. And to serve in the strength of the Holy Spirit as we were there with you. And despite what others were falsely accusing of, Paul's own conscience assured him of the truth within of where his heart really was before God. And I tell you, that's a very valuable thing because it's wonderful to maintain, is it not, a clean conscience. To be able to have a clear and a clean conscience is a wonderful thing to have integrity within, which allows you to hear within about yourself when you put your head down on the pillow at night, despite what anyone else has said about you or may be accusing you of, that you can lay your head on your pillow down at night and know, you know what? I know what is true about my heart and what's going on, irregardless of what others may have said or done to me. And and look, I think this encourages us as Paul talks about these things in verse 12 about his own life the purity of his heart and godly sincerity and seeking to operate in the spirit, not in fleshly wisdom in his reasoning, that we should really seek to be intentional to avoid at all costs hypocrisy and to esteem in our lives integrity and to try and do those things where we keep away from impure motives, despite the fact of being misunderstood from time to time, at least you can put your head down on the pillow at night then and have a good night's sleep. Because you know in your heart where you stand before God. And this is a tremendous gift and something that we can really grant to ourselves. And Paul was thankful that he could boast and rejoice in this thing. He goes on, verse 13, for we are not writing to you, he says, any other things to you than what you read or what you understand. So Paul's assuring that when he writes his letters and he communicates in the different correspondence between them, he's saying, look, what I write to you, it's straightforward. I mean what I say, and I say what I mean. There's no underlying meanings. There's no hidden codes in what I'm trying to say. He says, what we're writing to you, we mean nothing other than what you read and you can clearly understand. Paul says, we are into clear and direct Speech. We're not trying to be passively aggressive. We're not trying to be manipulative or tricky with our words. We're not trying to communicate in a way whereby, you know, you, you can't really understand what we're meaning. Paul says, look, what we say is what we mean. We're being straightforward in our communication. What we wrote and what you read and understand is exactly what we mean. And he says, I hope you can come to understand this reality about us to eliminate further confusion, Paul says. Because if you know that our heart is sincere then even at times when there are misunderstandings, at least if you know our hearts, that we're sincere, then hopefully you can trust the genuineness of our heart in what we're saying rather than assume things unnecessarily because you'll know our heart and knowing our heart will help 
to eliminate further misunderstanding. And Paul here, you can tell he's making a sincere effort to clear up misunderstanding. Why? Because he cared about the Corinthians. And because he cared about them relationally, he knew clarity and clearing up misunderstanding was important for relationship. And so Paul's making a concerted effort here. And I'll tell you, folks, we should have the same mindset and be motivated to do the same in our Christian relationships and in our relationships with others generally because clarity in relationships and direct communication is extremely valuable. It's something that's very helpful because it helps us to understand each other's hearts and typically it's that clarity and clearing up misunderstandings sooner rather than later that keeps our relationships in a healthy condition. It's when we don't do that, we let the waters get more muddied and muddied and muddied, and it, it just pollutes a relationship. And so Paul here, he's really making an effort to try and bring clarity and fix this misunderstanding. He was on verse 13 to say, now I trust that you will understand even to the end, he says, as also you have understood us in part. In other words, I know you partly understood, but I want you to fully understand that we are your boast, your confidence, as you also are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he expresses a hopeful heart here that they can come to understand him, not just partially, but Paul says, I want you to understand fully so that there could be resolution to this issue. Because he knew clarity and truth are like, you might say, the medicinal uh, salve, the medicinal solution to wounded relationships. When you've got a wounded relationship or a, a damaged relationship, what is the first path? Well, to, to, to seek clarity, to speak truth, to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth in love and to seek to have clarity and understanding because that's like the medicinal treatment for wound in many relationships. And he indicated his desire for this was so that things might be right, he says, in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that is that day when the Lord returns. Paul said, I want to be grateful as we ought to be for our connection to one another in the day of the Lord and be able to rejoice together in that day. Again, when you see that phrase, the day of the Lord here in our verses, it's a reference to that day when Jesus returns and more than that, when he establishes his rulership. And when Jesus returns to this earth and establish his righteous rulership over the earth, guess what's going to happen? He is going to right everything that's wrong. And he's going to bring peace to all the problematic situations that exist among humanity. So Paul, interestingly, connecting these dots, he saw in light of what's coming ahead in the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and he makes everything wrong right and he makes every issue among humanity resolved with peace because he's the prince of peace. Jesus is going to bring that about one day. And Paul says, look, if that's where we're headed, why not get a jump start on the process here? Why unnecessarily continue to live in angry, bitter misunderstanding? He says, why not just learn to forgive and to be quicker to just let things go and to understand misunderstandings happen and not build an entire, you know, bridge or blockade to just keep somebody on the other. He said, why bother doing that? Because when the day that the Lord returns, guess what? And this is a shocker for some. When Jesus returns, every Christian will be together and you're all going to dwell in harmony. Nah. Yeah. It's really going to happen. In heaven, guess why? Because in heaven, 
our sinful body of flesh and our sin nature is gone. And when you don't have your sin nature, you can't be bitter anymore. I'm not bitter. I'll let you and the Lord decide that. But in heaven, you won't even be able to be bitter anymore. You won't be able to be unforgiving or angry or hold a grudge or you won't even be capable of it. So in heaven, we're all going to have perfect harmony, complete peace among us. Every relationship will be healed no matter how damaged it was. It's going to be one of the glories of heaven. We're going to dwell together in complete harmony. And so Paul says, look, if that's where we're going to end up, wouldn't it be wise to just start heading that direction now? Why hold grudges over misunderstandings and, and nurse wounds of things that have happened in the past? Is why not just say, look, we're Christians, we're brothers and sisters, there's a higher cause. Okay, something happened. You don't know how many times I've sat with people before and said something along the lines of, look, it's not like they murdered your mother. But sometimes that's almost how intense we get. Well, they, well I'm not diminishing things happen. But sometimes as the Lord's people, I mean, we're like the greatest at waxing spiritual and being bitter and holding grudges, but yet saying we forgive. And that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is we acknowledge the hurt, we're aware it happened, and yes, we work towards healing, but we also let things go. Jesus treats us like we never committed the sins that we committed. That's forgiveness. He treats us like that. And Paul says, look, the day of the Lord is coming. And he says, we should start moving in that direction now. He goes on, verse 15, to say, and in this confidence, I did intend. Notice, that was my intention. I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit. And then to pass by way of you, as I said in chapter 16 of the first letter, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, and then to come again from Macedonia to you, and then to be helped by you, on my way to Judea. So Paul clarifies what his genuine intentions were in his original plan. He reiterates it here. He planned to pass by, to briefly visit, to see Macedonia, and then to come by and have an extended stay on the way back from Macedonia to be with them for a while, he says, that you might then have a second benefit or a double benefit. The idea is if I follow my original plan, you would be able to benefit twice from us visiting together, and you would be encouraged on more than one occasion. Notice Paul found it very important to let them know, and that's why he's restating these things, what his true intentions were for the sake of clarity. He reiterates his intentions and clarifies his intentions to eliminate any need for misunderstanding. And again, this is a good reminder for us that it is wise to make sure that people understand your intentions. If they're not, clarify it. If you see your intentions are not being properly understood, then be intentional and clarify your intentions, what your intentions are, or clarify what your intentions were, though they were misunderstood. And in the same way, on the other side of that, it is also very wise to sincerely try to understand other people's intentions. Instead of quickly jumping to the gun and being... At, sincerely try and understand what their intentions were because maybe if you understood what their intentions are or were, maybe you'd be able to process and handle things a little bit differently. And so Paul here, he, he said, look, I want you to know what my intentions were. And he saw, notice, visiting the Christians there, our verses tell us here, 
in verse 15, he saw visiting those Christians and spending time together there as something that would bring them, I like this word, he says, bring them benefit, verse 15. To bring them benefit. And that word benefit is actually in the original language, the term where we get our our word grace or divine blessing. That is God's divine gracious favor. And here Paul is saying something. He's not just saying, hey, I want you to experience when I visit the benefit of some Christian fellowship because we can spend some time together relationally. Now, look, though indeed that does have important benefits, God has created us to be relational beings. And it is a part of the Christian experience for us to dwell together and interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as some have done. Because part of the Christian experience is for us to interact with other believers. That is how we lovingly encourage one another, how we build each other up spiritually and support one another. The Bible calls us the body of Christ. The body has many members. If you disconnect a part of the body from the rest of the body, two things happen. The body suffers because it's now handicapped from something that was supposed to be connected to it. And that disconnected member or part of the body suffers because it's not receiving what the rest of the body supplies to it. And so you have a mutual problem on both ends. And so as Christians, we are intended to be together regularly to enjoy the benefit of Christian fellowship. But Paul viewed his being with them as an opportunity to impart spiritual grace to them from the Lord. Paul saw it as an occasion not just to spend time with them, to be an instrument of the Spirit's ministry, to impart the favor of God to them in a gracious way to build them up and help their spiritual lives. He sought to use time spent with fellow believers as an occasion to benefit their spiritual lives. Paul says, I want to spend time with you, not just to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you because I want to try and look for avenues to enrich you spiritually, to bring greater benefit to your soul, to, to help strengthen you in the things of the Lord. And I'll tell you, this is how we should, as believers, I think, view our time together when when we spend time with one another. We should view our time together as believers in two ways. I need the benefit that it brings to me. I need to be with fellow believers because I need the spiritual benefit it brings to my soul as a Christian. And in the same way, I want to spend time with fellow Christians because I realize I should be trying to serve and bring benefit to other Christians to love them and encourage them and utilize my gifts as God's given them to each one of us. First Peter four says it this way, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So again, the Bible says this impartation of grace, that's our word benefit there, the impartation of a beneficial grace, we should each be using the giftings God's given to us to serve one another, to be good stewards of his grace, to build each other up. Paul saw this whole relationship thing as a mutual give and take because he says, if I come see you, you'll receive benefit. And then notice he says, I'll be helping benefit you spiritually. And he says, and then you can, he says, verse 16, you can help me practically by giving me assistance to get to my trip on the way to Judea. So Paul says, I can benefit you and you can help me. There's that give and take of mutual encouragement that comes spiritually when we value relationship as the Lord's people. Now, though Paul intended 
to get there, and he did plan that accordingly, as we said at the outset. God apparently had a different plan. And so God changed Paul's itinerary, and he didn't make it to Corinth. That's what caused the disappointment. The disappointment then translated into misunderstanding and actually sadly questioning Paul's character. He's not a reliable person. He's not dependable. And that's why Paul knows he's got to work through this process. So he says, verse 17, therefore, when I was planning to come, he says, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me, there should be yes, yes, and no, no. The idea is, inconsistency. And again, you can imagine what people were saying, things like, this guy, Paul, I mean, who can trust him? I mean, he's completely unreliable. He says one thing and then he does another. He makes plans, but he doesn't carry them out. And, and how can we even tell if he even really cares about us? If he cared about us, he would have come here. And, and more than that, if we can't depend upon him, then, then how can we even depend upon his message? This message that he gave to us, how can we even depend on any of them? Paul knew this lie of the devil was going to hinder both relationship and ministry. And so Paul doubles down here and he says, look, when I was planning, and it's almost as if he's asking these questions rhetorically. When I was planning, he says, do you really think I did it lightly? In other words, he's saying, maybe you're misunderstanding, but do you think I really give little to no consideration when I make my plans? that I have no concern and they're just quick and careless? Paul's saying, certainly not. I take plans very seriously and I take in consideration who they impact. He says, or that when I planned, that I was just planning according to my fleshly human ideas, he says there, verse 17, in a self-serving way. Paul says, of course not. I try and consider God's plan and I leave the ultimate plan up to God for his purposes, But notice in our verses, Paul does indicate that he knows what the outcome of careless planning results in. Because he says, when people do plan lightly, carelessly, and according to the flesh, what does that result in? He says that there ends up being this thing of inconsistency, yes, yes, and no, no. Paul says, what happens when people plan carelessly, when they plan according to the flesh, they end up saying yes when they really mean no. And they end up saying no when they really mean yes. Or there's this vacillating, being fickle and indecisive where they bounce back and forth in their decisions. Or they bounce back and forth all the time in their commitments. Whether they're saying yes to do something, and this happens, they'll say yes to do something, and then a challenge arises. Or they just become lazy. Or they just become selfish. And though they've said, yes, they're going to do something because of a challenge that arises or selfishness or laziness, as a result, that yes now becomes a no or vice versa. Sometimes people say no to something, but then after they say no to something in order to satisfy themselves or to satisfy another, they change their no to a yes. And both of them are inconsistency. Both of them are inappropriate things to do, vacillating, changing one's mind. And this becomes a pattern even for some people where they become very indecisive and undependable and they don't carry things out. They say they're going to do something and they never follow through. And Paul says, look, he's in essence saying, I completely concur with you. People who do this are doing something wrong. And as Christians, that should not be our character. Paul's going to say in the next verse, because God's faithful, we should be too. And Paul's saying, I completely concur. 
but that's not what I'm like. And he says, just because one time I changed my plan, please don't label me as this kind of person, Paul's saying. Yes, I had to change the plan. But he says, I'm not doing this all the time. I agree with you, this kind of behavior is not good, but please don't unfairly label me, Paul says, as such a person. And and he knew that this was something that was just a matter of clarity that needed to be resolved. So Paul says, verse 18, but as God is faithful or trustworthy, our word or commitment to you, he says, was not yes and then no at the same time. And look what Paul does. He's trying to drive home that he's a man of his word, But in the midst of doing this, look what he's doing in verse 18. He puts the focus on what? The dependability of God. That God is faithful. Notice, as they were disappointed and focused on Paul, he wisely takes their eyes off of him and he puts their attention on God in the midst of this situation. For God is the one who is utterly reliable all the time. He's completely dependable. And so Paul, in essence, almost says, look, Despite where this rolls out and what you think about me, he says, can I just bring to your remembrance, God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And you almost see what Paul's doing. The reason why Paul sought to be reliable and was so bothered that they thought he was undependable and didn't keep his word is Paul says, look, the whole reason why I try and be dependable and reliable and keep my word and follow through with my commitments is because that's the God that I represent. Look what he's saying in verse 18. As God is faithful, the idea is in the same way that he is trustworthy, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul says the basis of me wanting to be trustworthy is because God's trustworthy. The reason why I want to be someone who's reliable and dependable is because God is dependable. The reason why I want to be faithful and follow through when I give my word about something is because that's what my father is like and I'm his child and I want to represent him well. But either way, look, aren't you so glad as Paul makes this statement, verse 18, God is faithful. Aren't you so glad that's true about God, that God is faithful? Look, you may be here this morning and honestly, perhaps in your life, there is absolutely no one who has ever been faithful, fully reliable, trustworthy, dependable, There may be some of you here this morning, you're still nursing inward wounds of time when your own parents weren't faithful, weren't reliable, weren't dependable, where a spouse wasn't dependable, reliable, or faithful, or or individual. You're thinking, there's nobody that's ever faithful. That's not really true. There is one who is faithful. It's God. He's always dependable. He is always reliable. And that's what makes, to me, relationship with God extremely appealing. Extremely appealing. That though I make mistakes and though others aren't always reliable, everything about God is constantly faithful, consistent, dependable, reliable, unchanging. That's attractive to me. Very, very attractive to me. And since God is so faithful, we ought to seek as his children in our word to be faithful. In our conduct to be faithful, committed reliable people as we represent him. So Paul wisely wanting to keep this focus on the reliability of God because he knows that's what's best. After declaring that about the father, he now goes on notice to speak about the reliability of the son. Because look what he says, verse 19, for the son of God, just like the father, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not 
Yes and no, inconsistent, unreliable. But in him was yes. So Paul reminds them, everything we proclaim to you about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, it's all 100% reliable. It's not questionable. You don't have to worry if what we told you about Jesus is going to be yes this time and no next time. Where it's going to be fulfilled this time and not followed through with the next time. He says, Jesus, our Lord, is consistent. He's reliable. He never wavers and never changes. He says, in Jesus, everything you wonder or ask, the answer will always be yes. Oh, man, I blew it again. I blew it again. Is, is Jesus going to forgive me? Yes. Oh, but I blew it again. Is he still going to forgive me? Yes. Oh, I, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I, I need guidance in my life. I mean, the Lord's guided me before, but this, um, this, to vaccinate or not vaccinate. Oh, what do I do? This or this, this, is Jesus going to guide me? I mean, he's guided me through so much, but this, is he going to guide me? Yes. Because everything Jesus has done and done before will always be yes, because he never changes. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He healed you before, he can heal you again. He's helped you before, he can help me again. He's empowered you to defeat sin at other times in your life. Oh, but this, but yes. He has the same resurrection power that set the other addict free, he can set you free too. He set other people free, he can liberate you too. He never changes. This is what is so wonderful about Jesus. He helps us and he never, ever changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only person who will truly never, ever fail you. That's why he's worthy of our foremost relationship. Because he's completely, completely reliable. Paul says, for in fact, verse 20, all the promises of God in him, that's in Jesus, are yes. And in him, Paul says, or amen to the glory of God through us. Paul says every promise that God has given to us through Jesus Christ is guaranteed. Not only is it yes, but he says God even reinforces his yes by declaring his own amen. And the word amen literally means let it be so. In other words, God says, I promise because of what my son accomplished, it will be so. And the Bible is filled with promises of God given to us as the result of the work of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1 says, by his divine power, God has given to us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Through these, he's given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature multitudes of spiritual promises given to us as the result of being connected to Jesus, being married to our Lord and having the heavenly father be our father. There are so many promises. And he says, and here's the thing, all those promises that are in you being married to Jesus, joined to Jesus, he says, they are not only yes, they're an authoritative amen on top of that. In other words, when the father is asked, father, are you going to keep this promise? He says, yes. And then Jesus from behind him says, amen to that. 
Let it be so. Because, Father, they belong to me. And what I have done for them makes them a free recipient of my grace. And so he says, Father, I heard you say yes. Now let it come to pass, Jesus would say, amen, by heaven's divine power and authority. Look, and he says all of this, verse 20, is for what? To the glory of God through us. In other words, it glorifies God when he fulfills his promises through our lives. When we as his children trust him with his promise and we take his promise to the bank and we say, I I know what it looks like, but God's word promises A or B. And he said that it will be yes, and his son told me it will be amen, let it be so. And he says, and then when God does it, it's to the glory of God through our lives because people go, wow, God really did come through there for you. That's amazing. And God is glorified in the midst of those very things. Paul goes on, verse 21, to say, now... He who establishes us with you in Christ, that is in relationship with Christ, has anointed us in God, who's also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So Paul goes full circle here with the Trinity. Look, he talked about God's faithfulness. He talked about the son's reliability. And now in our verses, he talks about the assurance we have because of the work of the Holy Spirit himself in our lives. In ancient culture, special things were often set apart for exclusive purposes. So you would have certain types of instruments that were set apart for an exclusive special purpose. And when they would do that, usually they would anoint that instrument with an oil or a perfume. And the idea was it was set apart for a special exclusive purpose. Well, look, the Bible tells us that you and I who are saved by Jesus, we have been set apart now for God's exclusive purposes. You're his son, you're his daughter, you're his instrument, and we have been anointed with the identifying mark of the Holy Spirit who has identified us in belonging to him. And Paul speaks here of the assurance of God's promised work within us due to the Spirit's presence dwelling within our lives as a child of God and his ministry operating within. So these statements here depict the preserving power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks here of the Holy Spirit's presence within us, assuring us that the Father and the Son have full ownership of us. The Father and the Son have full ownership of us. Do you see what he says there in our verses? Look at verse 22. He says, God has sealed us, how? Via the Holy Spirit. God has sealed us via his spirit. That word seal there is a reference to the wax seal that they used in that day that they would put on cargo on the merchant ships. So when you purchased something and became the owner of it, they would seal your cargo with wax and then usually with a ring or some type of a stamp, they would then press into the wax and that was the seal or the mark of ownership. So that when that cargo went from this side in its journey and it reached the other side, when the, when the servants went onto the docks, they could identify, that's my master's because it has a seal on it. And no one's tampered with it because my master's mark of ownership is on it. And so nobody can tamper with it. Well, look, the Bible tells us that God has set a seal upon our lives spiritually as we journey from here to the other side of eternity. And that seal is his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit. 
The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, in Jesus you trusted after you heard the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. See, that seal on the cargo was the guarantee until it was picked up on the other side. The the transaction was completed by the owner who purchased it. The Bible says the same is true with us spiritually. God has given you his Holy Spirit to seal you as a child of God until he finishes the purchase transaction, which is when he ultimately says, that is mine, and now I will bring it home to heaven. It will dwell in my house. And he's given his spirit to seal you. Oh, but I failed. Doesn't matter. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Oh, what if the devil's trying to do things in my life? Look, God doesn't timeshare. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. No demons breaking into your life. He may hassle you, but a Christian can't be demon-possessed. Are you kidding me? You think God timeshares? Absolutely not. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit to assure that you belong to God. His ownership was upon you. And not only that, the Father and Son also indicate an obligation to you. Not just ownership, but obligation, because he uses another word here. He says, verse 22, he's given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, when we accept Jesus in salvation, the Bible teaches that the moment you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit enters inside of your life. That's how you are born spiritually. You come alive spiritually, and then the Holy Spirit dwells and resides continually inside the life of a Christian. He is that guarantee living within us, the spirit dwelling in our hearts to help us in our spiritual walk. But that word guarantee that Paul uses there is a term that was referred to of a pledge or a down payment. In other words, when you purchase something, you might put a down payment to indicate you plan on finishing the transaction later on. This is my guarantee that I will finish the transaction of this purchase. This will belong to me. It also was a term that was used to refer to the engagement ring. So typically, again, the giving of an engagement ring is what? Is basically you muster up as many of your pennies as you can, right, guys? And you say, look, I am giving this to you as a pledge, a guarantee I plan on completing the relationship transaction. And this is my pledge. This is my guarantee that I plan on future intentions. Well, God has given you a very valuable pledge or guarantee. He actually gave you his very Holy Spirit. That's how serious God is. That's how serious he is about fulfilling the completement of our salvation and giving to us a guarantee that he plans on you being together with him relationally forever. He's given you his spirit. He couldn't give you a greater engagement ring. Philippians 1 says, we should be confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How wonderfully secure we are sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit being given to us as God's child. God's very dependable. When he says salvation is sure, he wants you to know that it's sure. You keep trusting that. Verse 23, Paul concludes saying, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul 
that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So Paul says, look, I want you to understand one of the reasons God, it seems, rerouted me and I began to recognize why I didn't come to Corinth when I did was because of some of the arrogancy and some of the resistance. If I would have come, Paul says, it would have required some very strong disciplinary action and the father would have had to imply a spanking or so. And so Paul's saying here, look, Truth be told, I believe the reason God rerouted me was actually to spare you, that I didn't have to be overly severe with you because he recognized that God delaying him would give those who were there in error and arrogancy in their sin and their pride a chance to course correct on their own. And he says, so God spared you from me showing up to give you a little bit more time to repent and to course correct rather than me having to be incredibly severe with you. Now notice he quickly, because Paul knows misunderstandings happen. What do you mean? Spare us. Who do you think you are? Our daddy? Our father? You think you control our spiritual lives? Paul says, wait, I see you misunderstand me a lot. Verse 24. Not that we have dominion, he says, over your faith. We are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul quickly clarifies, look, this is not about us having control over your lives. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, one translation renders this. This does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith in practice. We just want to work together with you so you will have full joy for by your own faith, you stand firm. Paul's indicating, look, I wanted to preserve your freedom so that you could act as you were convinced by the Lord you were supposed to act between you and him and that you weren't pressured by me or my ministry or my comments and do just what I say to do rather than doing what you truly believe God would want you to do. And Paul says, I wanted to actually protect your freedom. Just please don't misunderstand how this works. I don't have control over your spiritual life. I don't want to dominate your spiritual life. I don't want to rule over you or, or, or control you. I don't want to make your decisions for you. He's saying that's between you and your God. Look, this is an important spiritual principle because no one can or should rule over or control the heart and choices of another person spiritually. We were created free will beings. That's the way God made it. One person is not supposed to rule over or govern or control the choices of another person. That is between them and their God. And Paul says, I, I wanted to refrain for that very reason. Now, let me say this in connection to this before we conclude. What is odd, and I just say this by observation, is sometimes some people subtly prefer to have someone dominate and control them spiritually. And I believe the reason for that more often than not is because they don't want to have accountability to God for their own choices in their life. So they would rather someone completely control and tell them what to do all the time. Because then they don't have to stand on their own two feet spiritually. They don't have to make their own choices personally. They don't have to seek God for direction and hear from the Lord themselves, but then answer to the Lord in accountability for their own personal choices and decisions. And Paul says here, look, we're just fellow workers. We're just like foremen on the job site. We're not the boss. We're just like spiritual coaches guiding you, encouraging you, but ultimately says, we want you to have joy from learning how to stand in faith on your own. 
Paul knew there is no greater joy than for a person to know, I sought the Lord, I heard from the Lord, I believe this is what I'm supposed to do, and I will take full accountability and responsibility before him for that. Paul wanted them to learn to stand on their own two feet. Listen, that is an important lesson for all of us. God wants you to learn to stand on your own two feet spiritually. He doesn't want you being spiritually nannied by another person. You must learn to walk with Jesus, hear from Jesus, listen to Jesus, but then you are also accountable to Jesus and that you would answer before him on your own standing. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you.